My name is Scott Challoner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we're joined on today's programme by Carolyn Hobday, a multi-published author, media commentator and HR operations and change expert. Um, Carolyn is the founder of The Midlife Mistress, an organisation which is helping leaders instil positive change in their business cultures. And she also works as the Chief Operating Officer of Brilliant, which also aims to change the face of the recruitment sector. Um, Carolyn, very warm welcome to you today and by all means thank you for joining us on the show and it's a real pleasure having you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my pleasure Carolyn and it's good to uh, have you alongside us and thanks so much uh, for the time taken to uh, to do this. Um, I have obviously sort of given a brief overview as to sort of what it is that you do just for the listeners that might not be familiar with you but in your own words what is it that the uh, the midlife mistress and brilliant perhaps to an extent also specialise in? So as the midlife mistress, um, for me, it's all about working with midlifers. So that's really anybody that's probably over the age of about 40. And really, um, because midlifers now are what's known as the sandwich generation. So we're the generation that were told that we could have it all. Um, you know, we could have work, we could have home, um, we could have the lifestyle we wanted, um, and all of those things that we associate with success. But I actually think that as midlifers, we're feeling pretty burnt out um, and seeing that having all of those things isn't necessarily what we want um, but also as a sandwich generation um, we're probably one of the first generations that have both elder dependents um, and also children mm. so again that's adding um, to the, the burden that we have but I particularly work with leaders to um, look at sort of their leadership style and particularly because I'm an HR professional by background, but particularly looking at how we can kind of um, alleviate and eliminate people problems in a business. Um, I spent a lot of my career uh, with leaders saying to me that, you know, I feel like a social worker to my mm. team um, and it doesn't have to be like that. So I'm really on a, on a mission to work with leaders to say there is a different way. There's a more human centric way. And if you do that, you'll be amazed at how the people problems start to disappear. Yeah, and I'm interested to understand more about how that transition came about. So what sort of motivated you to kind of make the move from working in HR within industry to sort of the coaching side to try and really make that difference? Um, I think it was a number of things, to be honest. Um, a lot had happened to me in my personal life as well as my professional life. And I think that um, I had a bit of a moment, um, if I can call it that, in 2018 where um, my life completely caved in. Um, so I lost, I was pushed out of my job actually by a boss who was a bully. Mm. Um, and, um, and at the same time, my personal life completely caved in and it all happened within the space of 10 days. And so it was a real like pressing the reset button sort of moment. And I did a load of work on myself and then I started um, very quickly and I put back all of those tenets of success. So again, the house, the job, the car, the lifestyle. And I kind of pretty much done all of that and successfully done it a few months later and really then just had a moment and thought, hang on a minute, all of these things that we say that success looks like, all these things that we're sort of told we should strive for, it just suddenly felt quite meaningless. And realized that actually I, I didn't really want to do that anymore in the same way. And 
I think, you know, I'd work very hard um, and to a very senior level from an HR point of view. And I just wanted to take some time out for a while, um, if I'm honest. Um, and that coincided actually with the pandemic by that point. Mm. Uh, by the time I managed to do that, sort of organise myself to do that and to take that time out and realise that actually rather than trying to be win- within just one organization and trying to change the culture and, and coach leaders, I actually wanted to be outside of those organizations, but able to come in and help those leaders and coach those leaders to be more inspirational. So, you know, we talk, there's a lot around people engagement and, you know, a lot of the stats that we get is that most employees are pretty indifferent and that's probably a nice way to put it. I mean, some mm. of them positively angry um, and disengaged. So taking that indifference and actually turning it and making those people feel inspired by helping leaders to be inspirational. And when we think about sort of going in and changing cultures that are, let's say, bad, if we, for want of a better word, what are some of the uh, the common issues when you go into a business that needs help uh, and there are problems within that company's culture? I think that often, I mean, I, I think that for the most part, you know, I try to see the the human spirit as, as a positive, good one. I don't think people turn up to make other people's lives miserable. Um, I really don't. I mean, there are a few um, that I think take some pleasure from that, but I think for the most part, most leaders don't aim to turn up and, and you know, create misery in the people that work with them and for mm. them and around them. Um, so actually, I think a lot of it is lack of awareness. Um, I think often it's about trying to reconnect them with where do some of your attitudes and behaviors come from? You know, who were your role models? Who do you want to be a role model for? So I think there's definitely some self-awareness that's usually needed. Um, And I think that overall, you know, a lot of what we see is that we spend our time um, promoting technical specialists but we don't then either look for them to have people skills to go with that or Mm. actually help nurture those people skills. So a lot of individuals, like I said, are just sort of going that, well, to be a manager and a leader, you know, um, I have to, you know, have that sort of command and control attitude because that's what a leader looks like. Mm. Um, And it's like, well, no, they don't actually. But that's kind of the image we have in our head that's been set in place over hundreds of years, really, since the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so I think a lot of people go, well, I don't really know how I'm meant to be. Um, and I therefore sort of fit this stereotype of I'm going to tell my people what to do. I'm going to have to have all the answers all the time. So I'm going to have to look like I've got the answers all the time. Um, and, you know, I'm going to have to sort of rule um, with an iron fist. Um, and it's like, well, no, there is a different way. But I think there's a, a lack of awareness of what that different way is and and how to implement it and still be effective yeah I understand exactly where you're coming from with that kind of command and control sort of leadership and it seems to me that certainly since the pandemic those attitudes are starting to change because people are becoming far more aware of things such as work-life balance and personal well-being and they're no longer going to tolerate that sort of treatment so leadership needs to adjust to become far more let's sort of say holistic soft touch and focused on the development and the pathway that the individual takes rather than essentially the uh, just 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 management just command absolutely i i think what's really interesting is that there was a um a survey that came out only a few days ago i think that it was done through microsoft um and and you're absolutely right it's 
you know, what employees want now is that more holistic approach. They want it to be recognized that they turn up as a whole human being and that our whole lives affect, um, you know, work affects home, home affects work. You know, mm. we are holistic and just one being. We're not a work being or a home being. Um, but at the actually the disconnect between that and what managers and leaders are still thinking. So the survey by Microsoft sort of said that I think it's 87% of employees said that they felt they could be effective, for example, working from home. But 80% of managers and leaders disagreed with that. Mm. So there's still this massive disconnect about the expectations and wants and needs of our employees and how they believe they can be effective. And it's really a trust issue. You know, it is a trust issue then of leaders going, well, I'm going to trust my people to do the right thing um, without being told. And I think there is still a long, long way to go because you're right. I think that there are a lot of people that have come out of that pandemic phase. You know, not everybody wants to work at home. Mm. Not everybody wants to do hybrid working. Not everybody wants to go into the office. So it is about a more individualized holistic people-centered approach recognizing that one size doesn't um, doesn't fit all isn't it and uh, i think you're absolutely right in highlighting trust because if there is a lack of trust between a leader and their employees let's say it's uh, that is a fundamental problem and um when we think about sort of culture more broadly as well um you can go on and read sort of many different sources and diversity in leadership is considered a positive in many many different ways and that's not just of course diversity in terms of ideas but also diversity in terms of perhaps sort of gender sex um, obviously background as well and something that is hugely apparent as well certainly in the uh, the corporate world is the lack of women representation in senior positions and a lot has been made about this it is something that we've discussed on the podcast before do you sort of resonate with that yourself as well you've been experiencing hr over the years have you found yourself sort of being almost underrepresented in these positions oh i, I mean i've frequently been what i would describe as the only bird on the board Mm. Um, frequently been in that position and possibly because of some of the environments that I did my HR in that were traditionally male dominated mm. um, but absolutely yes you know I, I would also have um, I would you know I'm thinking about one of my teams that I led in particular that I you know I, I had a relatively for, for HR actually because you get you don't get as many males in HR um, in the first place unless they're at a, a senior level which is always I think interesting um, you get lots of male HRDs but not very many males actually in in the in the ranks of, of HR itself but um, you know I, I had a I had a, a fairly diverse team um, as HR went but yeah I, and, and some very effective individuals that reported directly into me but when I would have conversations with them about you know their future plans you know their thoughts whether they would you know consider themselves or want to be my successor I used to get an out and out like no we don't want to do what you do it looks horrible um, and I used to try really hard not to make it look horrible but their perception of what it took to kind of be the only bird on the board and to sit in that kind of environment was was negative and I think I think the challenge that we have is it's one thing to try and increase that representation I always always am an advocate that that representation should come from you know merits you know people should be there on their merits not mm. just because they are of a particular gender or or skin color or any of those things you know anybody would want to be there on them on their merits but we have to understand 
better, I think, what that merit looks like, like you say, the mm. diversity of thought and background. Um, but I think the thing that we don't understand always, I think, is that I think for women in particular, you know, I can only speak from the point of view of being a woman because I am one. Um, so I don't try and speak on behalf of anybody else or mm-hmm. anything that I'm not. But as a woman, I think often those women look at that environment. They look at those boardrooms or those senior levels. And it isn't a case of they don't have access so much to it or to the opportunity to get there, although that is still a problem. What they actually lack is the desire to get involved in that. Mm. Because it's like if when I look at that and if I think that's how I need to behave or that's how my life is going to have to be in order to be considered part of that group and successful, I don't actually want it. And so there is a difference between a lack of access to it and a lack of equality of opportunity to be there and a desire to be there. And I think that that's the difference is that I think for quite a lot of women, they look at it and think, I don't want to have to be like that in order to survive in that environment. And that's the bit that we need to change is the, is the attitudes and the cultures within those leadership groups to make it so that more junior employees or women, mm. um, for example, because like I said, I can only speak from that point of view, look at it and go, oh, yeah, I'd like to be part of that. That's a very interesting point, actually, because even if, say, for instance, we have a diverse board, which does have women on it, does have people of colour on it, and essentially ticks the boxes of diversity, let's say, there's no guarantee, is there, that the women on that executive board that are in that position of success, let's call it, are going to essentially have their voices heard any more than the males on the board. That's where the problem lies, isn't it? Because women have to adopt these these qualities, don't they? These far more sort of hardline, cutthroat qualities to essentially excel in that position. And that's not necessarily something that women want. And if a woman comes and challenges somebody in that sense, in that boardroom, what's the opinion of them going to be among their peers, do you think? Because it seems to me as if it's quite negative when it shouldn't be. Yeah. And I think there's, I think again, there's another difficulty. So some of the worst people I have worked with and for have been women that behave like men. They're the worst kind. They're, they're often for me, they've been worse than than dealing with some of the men. And don't get me wrong, not all the men have been bad. There's been some amazing men that I've worked with. There's also been some amazing women. But the worst women are those that behave like the men in the first instance. Um, but yes, yeah, similarly, there are differences of, uh, of opinion. Again, you know, I've been the only bird on the board, um, as I said, you know, a couple of times. And there's, again, one in particular that, that would come to mind for me where, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm an empath. Um, I've worked in HR. I work with people. Um, you know, that has been my bread and butter for, for nearly 25 years. And, but I would be, if I would, you know, put an argument forward um, and and sort of you know lean in, so to speak. Uh, I I have been described as over emotional, um, and whereas I I worked on the board with a with a guy um, who was very good at what he did, but I would say he was way way more emotional about stuff than I ever was mm. um, in his delivery and his approach and his responses, um, but he was passionate. That would be the description. He was passionate um, and committed, whereas I was emotional. And so it is about those different ways that they get get described, um, you know, between between males and females. And I think that's part of what needs to shift because, I, again, we if we're going to have 
diversity on those boards, we also have to have diversity in the way that we think and we accept people um, and able to stand back and go, that isn't how I would be, mm. but this is how they are. And it's good that there is that, that diversity and that difference. Yeah, and um, I, th- I think there's a dissonance, isn't there, between the fact that a male can sort of display some of the qualities that we've talked about and they can be praised as being sort of, you know, fiery and passionate. But then if a woman goes and essentially displays those very same qualities, it is considered a negative by obviously even the male peers as well that are on the board. And that that's something that's important to consider in terms of sort of our, our like internal biases, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I, it's always interesting, you know, because for me, you know, I would always be prepared to speak up, particularly when I thought something was wrong, mm. um, that it went against my integrity, if it went against both my values and what, what the business would be saying that its values were, I would be prepared to speak up. You know, if I felt somebody was being spoken to in the wrong way or we were making a decision in a way that wasn't appropriate, um, particularly where it disadvantaged um, people, I felt it was unjust to either an individual or a group of people obviously by the nature of my my role in HR, you know, I would be prepared to challenge that. I would be prepared to speak up. But what amazed me is that often um, my male counterparts wouldn't. And I even had one come to me once and said, you need to be prepared to walk others into the line of fire because they would let me be the mouthpiece. And I used to say in the end that I had more balls than any guy that I've worked with um, because I would be prepared to speak up. But it was very interesting that some of these people with what I would class as quite bullying, aggressive Mm. um, attitudes and ways when push came to shove, you know, would be sort of sitting around the table looking at their shoes and sort of letting me be the one that would speak up and challenge. Um, and we need to create environments, you know, and, and I don't want to sit there and go, you know, they're all cowards. And But we need to create environments where people feel prepared to speak up. They feel mm. able to speak up. They don't feel that they're going to be punished for speaking up and saying what they think. Because a lot of what I would deal with was there would be some very different views outside of the boardroom than the ones that got spoken up within the boardroom. And that comes down to leadership, doesn't it? Because essentially you need to be prepared not just to ask the difficult questions to those around you as a leader, but you've also got to be prepared as well to be challenged. And that is another sign of how leadership needs to be adjusted, doesn't it? I mean, it needs to be that sort of two-way relationship. And obviously as well, that sort of enhances the trust element, doesn't it, as well? Absolutely. You know, it's one thing to, you know, ask the questions, but you've got to be prepared to listen to the answers, even when that's Mm. really hard. Um, And also, I think one of the key things for me is in that trust relationship is about safety. It's creating a safe environment, but also recognizing what does each individual do when they feel unsafe? What's their default? You know, because it, it normally falls into one of two. It's either silence or violence. You know, they either shut down cease to participate, don't say anything, or they get agitated and angry and vocal and maybe express themselves in ways that aren't ideal. And it's noticing that as a, as a leader, it's noticing it as anybody, you know, anybody that sits around the table with any team, what happens to my other, you know, what happens to me when mm. I feel unsafe and, and starting to be aware of that. So that starts with self-leadership, but actually then what happens to the people around me when they're put into a place where they feel unsafe? And if you know that, then you can start creating environments that pull them back from that unsafe place and go, actually, no, let's return to a place of safety where you do feel able to either speak up if you've gone silent or you feel able to speak up in a way that is calm, 
and rational and reasonable um, if you tend to, to err towards the, the violence versus the silence. So mm. it, I, that's the skill of a leader. But none of those things actually are very hard. Mm. All of that just requires is listening and observation. And then a few simple tools to go, oh, okay, let me try and return myself to a place of safety or let me try and return this other person to a place of safety. Yeah, it is incredibly important. And just kind of looking at the status of women in leadership at the other moment. I mean, 2022, there have been a lot of things happen that could really inspire women who are aspiring to get into leadership because we've seen the England women's football team win an international title whether you're a royalist or a republican, we've seen people paying tributes to Queen Elizabeth II following her death and talking about how she was one of the most inspiring, incredible and beloved leaders that this country's ever seen. We have the third woman prime minister of the United Kingdom. So even though these may not necessarily be things that are going to sort of trigger an immediate impact, we've got to look at these as sources of inspiration and almost use them as a springboard to kind of implement that that positive change that needs to be seen. We absolutely do. Um, and those are, you know, some great examples of, you know, of, of how things, you know, can be different and, and how they can be. And I think it does give us hope for the future. I mean, I think when it comes to, um, you know, Liz Truss, for example, you know, my, one of my pleas to her, and, and I'll be honest, I wrote to her, um, and, you know, when she when she came into her position and, and, and said to her, you know, one of my pleas is, please, please don't be an example of toxic feminism. Please don't do that thing where it's like, I need to behave like a man in order to survive, in, in what is still a very male-dominated environment um, that she's within, because mm-hmm. I think we need to make sure that these these senior females are an example of, you know, a, a different kind of leadership um, that, that, you know, that, that classic charismatic out the front, you know, leading from the front, rah, rah, rah kind of leader actually isn't what inspires people. And there is lots of research and science that demonstrates that. And I think you're right. You know, Queen Elizabeth is a really great example of why she was a huge figurehead and known all over the world but actually she wasn't out there sort of shouting and screaming and trying mm. to be like a man. You know, a lot of it was through kindness, softness, vulnerability. Um, and I think those are the things that people do warm to. And it didn't make her soft. It absolutely didn't make her a pushover. And there's lots of stories of how she was very influential, but quietly influential because she'd built that respect. And I think we need to just, you know, pick our role models um, carefully, and, and you're right, you know, the, the England women's football team, I think, have been massively inspirational. And I think, uh, you know, not only that, what's been great is that they got there because they were actually led and coached at the top by a woman. Mm. Um, you know, that's also worth noting as well. You know, I think that, that you know, that kind of leadership, the, the team mentality, um, the fact that we were, you know, they were, they sort of all were part of creating it, whether you were on the pitch or you, you didn't make it onto the pitch. They all felt that they were part of, of that success. So I think there's there's lots of examples, um, but there's just still not enough of them. And I think the bit that I say to anyone, you know, male, female, you know, whoever it is that I work with, um, I always say it is actually about taking a moment to go, what's the legacy that you want to leave? Mm. What do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? What do you want people to say about you, you know, after you've ceased to be their leader um, and either you or they have moved on? Who is it that you want to be a role model for? 
and why that's why is that important because we don't necessarily keep promises to ourselves whether they're you know things that we do or ways that we want to behave we find it easier to break a promise to ourselves than we do to break a promise to somebody else and mm. so find somebody else that will be that motivation to be the kind of leader that you would want to have and make sure that your behaviors particularly those behaviors you know and those attitudes when no one's looking you know because that's what's a real mark of our integrity isn't it that you do mm. the right thing in the right way when nobody's looking and you're not going to get any credit for it. And, you know, who do you want to be a role model for and, and stick with that and, you know, keep that as your reminder and your, your leverage um, to do the right thing. Exactly right. And it, it's huge food for thought. And you mentioned such a key word there as well, invulnerability. And I think that there's some of the best leaders out there at the moment have to show that vulnerability and transparency, because what we've seen during the pandemic as well is that, we never have all of the answers and we're not infallible and owning up to that and indeed sort of owning that situation that is going to command far more respect from people than essentially almost taking them on a course as if you do have all of the answers absolutely um and it's that thing of going i don't know i don't know but i'll find out I don't know, but I will leverage the people that I've got around me. And I think it was, you know, for me, one of my massive frustrations in, in you know, some of my experiences in the corporate world where, you know, I'd have in one of my roles, you know, a team of 30 people working for me. But the expectation when I went into the boardroom is that I'd know the absolute minutiae of detail about everything that was going on um, in, in my function in my area. And it's like, that's not what you're paying me for. I have this amazing group of people who are the experts in that. And I'm really comfortable to go, leave that with me. I don't know the answer to that level of detail. I know, you know, at a top line, I know where we're at. But if you need that level of detail, I will need to go and ask the person who is the expert in that. And I think it's perfectly okay to do that. But I think we have been brought up with this idea that as a leader, mm. we need to have all of the answers. And we really, really don't need to have all of the answers. If you show that you can find out, if you show that you know where to go, if you show that you are able to then go and, and learn and grow from, from that new information yourself, all of these are attributes that other people will admire in you, not the I am going to, you know, you know, fob you off or fumble my way through this by pretending that I know an answer uh, when I actually don't. And it links back as well to sort of the very team that we build around us as leaders as well and that idea of being willing to be challenged. I mean, the whole idea is that you have that diverse team with diverse skill sets to complement what you're not good at. You surround yourself with people who are better than you are. And so you prepare yourself, you're willing to be challenged and you're willing to be asked difficult questions on those areas that you might not be so strong at. And you consider the responses and you take action according to that. Uh, absolutely. And sometimes I think that you're better when you don't have that background and that familiarity because you will ask the really basic questions, which sometimes need asking because we all sort of march forward going, well, this is the way we've always done it around here. But if somebody comes along and goes, well, why? And you go, oh, actually, yeah, actually, why do we do it like that? And then you question. And then again, that's how you develop and, and grow. Um and, you know, and, and go back to, um, you know, the, the, the current government and um, leadership, you know, it's, it's why I wrote to Liz Trust and I went, I have no background at all in government. You know, I've never worked anywhere um, for a government organization. However, 
I think that might be my biggest strength in coming and helping you and supporting you mm. with sorting out what needs to be done because I have a load of experience in other areas, but I, you know, I can come in and sort of ask those questions, those really basic questions. You know, we can, we can sit here and go the stupid questions, but none of them are stupid. No question is stupid and not least when you're going, explain to me why you do that or explain to me why it is that you think that way. Explain to me why you think that's the only way to do it. Um, those are questions that we all need asking at some point, you know, and being challenged at. And I think that that's what we should be there and encouraging. And again, it's that creating that safe environment that those questions can be asked. You know, I'm not asking them to make you look stupid. I'm asking them so that we all have that intellectual inquiry within ourselves, that curiosity on an ongoing basis. That means we always find the best way of doing something based on our collective intelligence. Exactly right. And talking about Liz Truss, I suppose some of her immediate priorities in power are obviously going to be addressing the ongoing cost of living crisis, inflation and getting a grip on the uh, the UK economy. Obviously, of course, there's a, there's a huge dispute going on about the, uh, the policies announced on Friday. Let's indeed see how all of that does play out. Um, but as we start to see all of that unfolding and you continue to work with some of the clients that you work with, Carolyn, over the course of this sort of next 12 months, just before we wrap up, by the end of 2023, what kind of work are you expecting to be doing? What are you expecting to be hearing from your clients in terms of the issues that need resolving? And indeed, where do you see yourself by this time uh, next year and what are you hoping to have achieved? I think very much, um, you know, my passion is around people, obviously. Um, and I do think that there is a huge piece of work to be done about making our organisations more people-centric. I think mm. that's what has screened out from the pandemic um, and I think that we are yet to fully feel the wave of that. And I think, you know, you then add on to that the fact, you know, people's concerns about things like cost of living, um, the extra pressure that's going to put on people at home. And so I expect to be working with leaders. I, I want to work with leaders to say there is a different way of leading your people. There's a more people centric way. But actually, that is actually a, about reducing the costs of those people, because if people are taking less time off because of their mental health, you know, that's a huge one that I think still we're yet to see the full crest of the wave mm. of the impact from the pandemic on, on, on our mental health. Um, if you want to have less absenteeism from mental health issues, and if you want to have less presenteeism from mental health, um, you know, but people being less productive, if you want to, um, you know, have less recruitment costs. Um, you want to have less talent attrition, which has a huge knock-on effect and cost in the business. You know, if you want your people who, you know, let's face it, it, it is a cliche, but it's true. You know, they are usually your most expensive, but your most valuable asset in your business. If you want to get the best out of your people, particularly when we're going into, you know, potential financial um, difficulty and, and, and recession, then you need to be, you know, looking after those people, leveraging them better, looking after them better, making sure they're less burnt out and stressed and able to be productive, making sure that you're not spending an inordinate amount of time dealing with the problems that they seem to come with, you know, and again, it's work, home, homework, um, interact with each other. Deal less with problems and start leading them differently so that those problems don't occur. So what I want to be doing in the next 12 months is working with leaders on that and saying this is a way to you, for you to keep your costs down mm. um, by avoiding absence, attrition, um, costly recruitment, um, you know, loss of talent, loss of intellectual property. 
Um, so working with, with leaders to, to lead those people in a different way to create better work environments because, you know, we talk about the war on talent, you know, I've been talking about that for years, um, but I think it is particularly tough at the minute. Lots of, of vacancies um, that, that are empty out there because organisations are struggling to recruit people because people are now becoming more savvy about who they work for. So if your reputation culturally is not good, um, it will be now people have access to that all over the internet. Mm. People can find out about it. They don't find out what it's like to work somewhere from the leaders of that business. They find it out from the other people that work there and from what gets posted online. Um, so creating better cultures, that for me is my focus for the next 12 months. And, you know, that's where I expect to be in, in, in 12 months time is working with those organizations, with their leaders, both collectively um, with those leaders, but also individually. Um, and I, I have a method that's called the simple method, which is an acronym for the six things that I think leaders need to do and pay attention to, which are simple um, to make their business more people centric. And, and for me in 12 months, I want to be out there um, and, and taking people through that simple model and actually reducing leaders stress. It's about making leaders less stressed, less burnt out and feeling less like they're the social workers for their team. And it's incredibly important as well because you are very, very right. It is an environment now where people are far more concerned for their well-being, what their sort of business, what their employers rather, um, ESG policies are, CSR policies are, how they value their workforces, how they sort of keep them happy, how they seek to develop them. And businesses are going to miss out on that ever-shrinking talent um, pool of talent out there aren't they if they don't move with the times on this so there's so much food for thought there for those in positions of leadership in the corporate world to really consider and it's going to be fascinating to see just how they respond to that and exactly uh, the work that you're trying to do Carolyn and uh, it would be fascinating as well certainly from my perspective if at some point in the next year maybe we could even welcome you back onto the show just to see exactly how they are responding to some of those challenges those challenging ideas that you're really putting before them. Yeah, and it would be great to come back and talk about that. And I think the thing is, like I said, I think all of these leaders are wanting to do a good job. They know that there's a challenge. They mm. know that there is something they need to be doing differently. But, you know, quite understandably, they're there going, oh, my gosh, I've got all these pressures from all these other different areas. I, I just sort of don't really yeah. know where to start with changing that culture or changing my own you know, methods of management and leadership. And, and really that's what I'm there for is to walk side by side with those leaders and go, it's okay. It's okay for you not to know. It's okay for you to be struggling with knowing how do I move forward? How do I make change and take my people with me? And, and that's what I'm there to do. Exactly right. Uh, so let's indeed see exactly how that does pan out over the course of the next 12 months. And um, for now, Carolyn, it's been incredible welcoming you onto the the programme with me and incredibly thought-provoking as well. And uh, for anybody who obviously wants to find out a little bit more about Carolyn and uh, the work that uh, she does, uh, the Midlife Mistress is uh, your organisation, isn't it? Um, is there a website that uh, we can direct the listeners to as well? Um, they can go to carolynhobday.com. So that's my, my website. Uh, fantastic so do have a look at that if uh, you do want to find out a little bit more about Carolyn and the work that she does and if anything that we have discussed on today's podcast does particularly resonate with you as a listener then you can certainly leave a comment with us at leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us as well and um, if you want to come onto the program to share your perspective or you are a business leader or the head of an organization with your own topical matter or issue to bring to the discussion table then you can apply to be on our program and share that story with us via leaders 
www.thecoachcouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Uh, for now, I've been your host, Scott Challoner, on today's episode of the Leaders' Council podcast, and I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed hearing from both myself and our guest today, Carolyn Hobday. Thanks all for tuning in, and goodbye. Until next time. <laughs>